Good morning. It is certainly wonderful to be here with you this morning. I want to join in with Jason and thank you for braving the weather for being here. I pray that the things that I present to you this morning will be beneficial, that they will be edifying. We're going to continue in our book of uh, book study of Romans. Um, it's been a couple months, so I'm, I'm going to combine chapter 7 and 8. Um, I was telling David yesterday I was struggling with what to cut and what to put in, um, so this may take about an hour and a half. Um, so I, I left a lot of things on the, it's very going to be a very, not a comprehensive study of these two chapters. There's a lot of stuff in here, and I'm kind of looking at the high points in this study. <clears throat> so in our study of Romans and the five S's of Romans, sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service, up to this point, whenever you look at Paul opening in Romans chapter 1, he establishes the fact that we are sinful people, and he talks about all those things in sin in Romans 1 and Romans 2. In Romans chapter 3, he turns to the Jews, and he asks a question, a very important question there, if was God the God of the Jews only? And he's began to establish this principle that the Gentiles are just as important as the Jews. He begins to talk about the Old Testament law, and he brings in the prophets. He even uses the law itself and how all of these things actually pointed to Christ, and that Christ was the one in which they received justification and not the law. In Romans chapter 4, he turned to Abraham, who was the father of their faith, and he talks about how the fa- Abraham was justified by his faith 400 years before the law was ever even established to let them understand that justification did not come through the law. At the end of Romans chapter 4, he introduces Christ and he talks about Christ and the grace that Christ offers, the grace that we have through Christ, and that we are separate from God and that none of us is righteous, none of us is pure, that we have to have Christ. In Romans chapter 6, he asks a very pivotal question. Should we sin more that grace may abound? Should we continue living in sin that grace may abound? Which was... The beginning of four questions that happens in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. We'll look at the other three today. He establishes this principle, understanding that we need to know our relationship with Christ came in the waters of baptism, that we were resurrected as Christ was resurrected. It wasn't a command, it was a reference to something that they had already done. He goes on to establish the principle of understanding, are we slaves of righteousness or are we slaves in sin in Romans chapter 6? As we look at the gears on this watch, this is understanding a, a very basic principle that all of these gears have to work for this watch to function, whether it's to tell time or whether it's to tell the date. And if one of these gears don't function, then there's something not functioning properly in the watch, and our salvation isn't any different. We have up here the gears of salvation and all the things that are involved in salvation. And all of these things have to work, and they work together for our salvation, for the purpose of our salvation. And it's very important that we understand as we go through Romans that we don't talk about all of these things all of the time. That doesn't mean that they're not important or that they're not necessary. There are some of these gears that are on our behalf that we can control, and there are some gears that are on God's behalf that He can control, and we know that those gears will never fail. And we talk about this for a very specific reason. Because we talk about mercy and we talk about grace, or 
individually we talk about baptism doesn't mean that we're forgetting all of these other aspects of salvation. It's just that we don't have time to cover all of the different gears of salvation. In our last lesson at the end of chapter 6, Paul said there, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin pays its wages over and again to those who are under its power. And ultimately, the result is separation for God. Now, in chapter 7, Paul is continuing to discuss the implications of not being under the law of Moses. And to do this, he, puts, he brings the law in and establishes a principle based upon the law. When we look at Romans chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Hold on a second. I always forget I need these. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So I want you to look at the beauty of what Paul has done up to this point. So Paul has established the law is not what, how we receive justification. He's talked about all of these principles in the Old Testament law, the prophets and all of that. And then he takes the law itself and a principle of the law, and he says, this is why Christ is superior. And I've got it all color-coded for you, just so you'll know. So the Jews were bound to the law of Moses. They're in the blue and the darker green. Jews was found to be adulterous to God because of the fact that they continually turned away from God. They continually turned and served idol gods. But now free from the law of Moses, they were not under the law of Moses, but under grace. We established that in Romans chapter 5, that if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So the law is dead. They are now released from that law. Now they're in a relationship. Now they're in a new relationship bound to Christ, and wouldn't, which wouldn't be outside the law because the law is dead as the husband was, is dead and no longer alive. In Christ, they are, no, they are not found, I shouldn't say no longer, but in Christ, they are not found adulterous to God. So that he establishes this principle and he goes on to say this, likewise, my brothers, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you being, may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. He's teaching that we are under a new law, this principle that he's established over and over again that they need to understand the law of Moses is not the law that they are under, that we have been set free. And not only have we been set free, but he accents this with a punctuation that says, for the purpose that we have, that you may bear fruit from God, for God. And that's what we need to tend not to lose sight of in all of this is we can go and look at all of the law and the differences in the law and why we're not in the law and all the things that Paul does, but ultimately it is for a purpose. That us being the fruits of Christ, that we have a purpose to bear fruit for God. He establishes this principle in Ephesians chapter 2, or in Ephesians as well, in the fact that we were created to do good works. That we have a responsibility and a purpose 
to bear fruit. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we come and look at accountability later. So we have this purpose and responsibility to bear fruit. We've been set free. The admonition here is not to go back to that which was enslaved you. Not to go back to the very thing that would hold you and bind you. You now have freedom. And what sense does it make for us to go back to the very thing that would hold us down? But that's a struggle that we continually deal with day in and day out whenever we want to turn back to the very thing that would hold us down and sin having rule and reign in our life. Paul is following through a line of thinking that he established all the way back in Romans chapter 5, whenever in verse 7, he says, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. So this is the second of questions or third of questions that he's asked that he began in Romans chapter 6. Yet if he had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin and seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin is, lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Paul has revealed that the law didn't save, it didn't justify, and didn't provide forgiveness. Rather, the law revealed sin. The law is what condemns. He's established this principle over and over. So the natural question then, is the law sinful? If law didn't save... If the law established sin or pointed out sin, then is the law itself sinful? And by quoting the 10th commandment, we get a clear understanding that he's talking about the law. And we need a law to show us that we are in violation of God's character. That was the purpose of the law, to point us towards that sin, that we are violating what God wants from us and what ultimately his character is. Paul continues that there was a time that he was apart from the law. And which asks, begs the question, you know, Paul was a Jew. Was he ever not under the law? He clearly states that there was a time that he was apart from the law. And I, this passage is probably heavily debated whenever you read it about what he's saying. But I think people are really overthinking it. And he's talking about his youth. That there was a time that he didn't understand the law. There was a time that he didn't understand, understand sin, and there was a time whenever he began to understand. At that point in time, things changed. When I was a young boy, and I'm very young, I was a boys' ranch, and on one morning I decided I needed to color the sides of the bricks on our dorm. I couldn't have been six years old. And I got my crayons out, and I colored all of these bricks on the side of our dorm. I mean, it was perfect. I mean, I kept them in the lines. It was beautiful. I went and got my dorm mother, and I, you know, took her outside. I wanted to show her this great artwork that I'd done. And I immediately realized it was wrong because she grabbed me by my ear, took me in the dorm, disciplined me, and then to add injury to insult, made me clean it all off with sponge and water. You know, up to that point, I thought, this was a great artwork. I was doing something that was beautiful. I didn't know that it was wrong. 
So my career as a graffiti artist came to a quick and abrupt end. And the realization that that's not what you do. And there's a re- that may be a little bit of a facetious way of looking at it, but that's exactly what Paul is referring to here. That there was a time that he didn't understand covetousness. But then whenever he understood covetousness, he realized in his own life, there was a lot of covetousness going on. And sin and having that opportunity makes us think and deceives us in thinking that we're okay with God, even though we're doing the things that are directly opposed to his character. And that's what the law was pointing out. Sin has a way of deceiving us and not thinking that we are accountable to God, that whatever we're doing is okay with God that I can live a life, as Paul referenced in Romans chapter 6, I can continue to live in sin so that grace may abound because that makes God look better. And it doesn't make any sense, but we fall into the very same trap thinking that we can do what we want, sin deceiving us, and that God would be okay with it. In verse 13, he says, he talks about, I did that which is good, then bringing death to me. By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The law of Moses wasn't the cause of death. It was not the cause of our death. But it is the cause of separation. The separation between us and God and it produces that separation whenever we're obedient to sin. The law ultimately revealed a man's desire to follow after sin. Man's desire to be enslaved by sin. It pointed out all of those things that sin is not good, that sin is not healthy, sin is not beneficial no matter how much we want it to be, that sin kills, that sin destroys, it separates families, it separates us from God, it makes us enemies with God. In Romans chapter 5, Paul said that at one time we were enemies with God. And that's because of sin. We're not to be at sin's disposal, but we are to be at God's disposal. In verse 15, or excuse me, verse 15 says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I Do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And I find this passage, if there's ever a summation of the Christian struggle, this is it. I want you to... Put yourself in Paul's shoes real quick and what Paul was doing. As Paul was spreading the gospel all throughout Asia Minor, seeing the growth of the church, seeing it grow aboundingly in the fruits of God's gospel being spread, you would think that this is a guy that's so in tune with God and everything that he is and everything that he wants that he wouldn't have these problems. But here you have Paul confessing and saying, 
There are things that I know that I shouldn't do that I am still doing. Paul has the, had the exact same struggles that you and I have. Galatians. The Christian hates sin. But why do we continually go and fall into the traps of the temptations that are set before us? Why do we continually struggle with this desire to serve sin? It's because of the flesh. Paul says there that I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And I find that statement fascinating in light of my own personal struggles that I have in my own life. That the flesh has such a strong hold over us. And that we're so willing to submit to the flesh. And verse 21 clarifies this. He says, so I found it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, for I, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And Paul continues on with this inward battle and this contrast of what is in his mind, and he has this desire to understand and do what is right, but he said, evil lies close at hand. And if there's ever something that we need to understand is that evil is always there. That evil is always waiting and crouching, ready to strike. Paul taught in Romans 6 that, he had been, that we had been set free from the law and that we're no longer enslaved to sin. And so now he's coming to Romans chapter 7 and showing us that uh, this, this struggle was sin that he's had. And he's talking about not having the ability and having to work and deal with the flesh. So is that a contradiction? What he's pointing us to is that there's victory and that there's victory in Christ. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks to be God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of God. Of sin. So what Paul's saying is that not all hope is lost. Who's going to deliver me from this problem? Who's going to deliver us from this situation? That it's all in Christ. Because in verse 8 or chapter 8, he then can turn, turns and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. So all of this struggle with the flesh that Paul is talking about, all of this evil that is setting us, that is so close at hand, all of these problems that he has, and then he says, Here's the solution to the problem. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Paul has instructed us earlier about those who were in Christ. In Romans chapter 6, he talked about those that were 
baptized in Christ, baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not just that we're baptized, rather it's the life that we live and the baptism having meaning. The baptism was the beginning of it all. The baptism was the beginning that Paul was referring to the life that they have now. The life that they're walking in the struggles of dealing with sin. This is a, an admonition or an encouragement to continue on and not give in to sin, not give in to the flesh, not give in to those that were teaching that the law is what you submit, should, should submit yourself to. <clears throat> we stand justified before God and we're not condemned. And the question is when? Right now. Paul says those... There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He didn't say in the future. He says right now. He's offering words of comfort and understanding of the struggle that we deal with. The struggle that he obviously has dealt with. In, Romans, in verse 5, he says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, Paul established the principle here of the Spirit. He really hasn't talked about that much at all up to this point in Romans chapter 8, and he, taught, he then establishes that here. And he wants us to consider something. He wants us to consider our life and how we're living. He says the mind that is focused on the flesh cannot please God. The mind that is focused on the flesh not only says he can't please God, but that it is hostile towards God because it doesn't submit to God. In Romans chapter 5, you were once enemies of God because you were hostile to God. You did not submit to God. And now he wants you to consider your life. Consider, are you living according to the flesh or are you living according to the Spirit? What do you value in life? What are your priorities in life? When we have struggles in life, where do we turn? Do we turn to the worldly to get answers from the worldly, or do we turn to the spiritual? When we wake up in the morning, is our focus on the flesh, or is it the eternal? This should be a passage that when we look at, should give us proper perspective. Those questions about the flesh and the spirit, and at the end of all of it, if you're focused on the flesh, you're hostile towards God. And you cannot please Him. Paul established... I keep going back to Romans 5 for some reason today. In Romans 5, when he talked about Adam and sin entering into the world through Adam and death to all men because for all have sinned, he established this principle 
not that we are all guilty of Adam's sin, but by nature, us having free will and the ability to make choices, we're going to sin as Adam sinned. And he also talked about Christ being the first. At this point in time, this is a time to look at, are we from Adam or are we from Christ? Verses 9 through 11, Paul is talking about him killing his old self, and he doesn't listen to it now longer now that he, he lives for Jesus. And we're not going to read these verses for uh, time's sake, obviously, but what it means to dwell in Christ and what it means to have our allegiance to Christ. And I want us to realize this very important, and it's established in these passages, but all throughout Romans that Paul's language, language is, is positional. That it's not for everybody, that it depends on our position in life or our status in life and what we've been granted as a status of being in Christ. That we are not in sin, but that we are in the Spirit. That we are in Christ and we're following after His teachings. In verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8 and 15 makes it very clear that we are not to fall back into fear. Romans 6, that were we slaves of righteousness or are we slaves of sin? Under slaves of sin, that is the life of fear that we are in, uh, on the opposite side of God. And he uses a very picturesque scene to describe our relationship with God. And he uses this term where he says, Abba, Father. This is only used three, three times in the New Testament in Romans, Galatians, and Mark chapter 4 when Christ is praying. And you can go back and research and what, what this word means, but obviously this has a clear distinction of a relationship or a close relationship with the Father or with God. And he says that we have the same opportunity to be heirs of what God has because we are adopted. And that we are heirs with Christ. But he goes on to talk about something very important and suffering. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We don't like to suffer, do we? The world that we live in we don't have very much suffering going on in context of what was going on in the early New Testament church. And it seems as though the lightest afflictions in our life, we, we whine and we complain a lot. Because it's so burdensome to have the most minor of things happen to us. I can think of a number of things just in this past week, being upset about to the point that I had not probably shouldn't have, should have ever have gotten to, and they were small in the big picture. 
You know, one of them was our, at work, we have a, when we go pick orders up, I work for a food distribution company. And as a salesman, I sometimes have to go pick stuff up for customers. And our guy that operates Will Call, he's a little bit of a cranky guy. And you go in and he's always giving you grief. You didn't wait two hours and all this stuff. And I, this, I haven't even been doing sales for a week and I'm already tired of this guy. And I walk in, you didn't, he starts lecturing me and not giving me the two hours. And I just said, just give me my food. I got to go. And I, I felt really bad when I walked out the door because I was so, I was, I was upset. And it wasn't that big of a deal. I had, I had 45 minutes before I had to go even deliver the product. So I had to walk back in, apologize for being a doofus. The minorest of things seem to trip us up and we don't necessarily even understand the suffering and the extent of the suffering that the early New Testament church was going through and the persecution that they received. But in the light affliction that even we do have, who do we turn to? Do we ultimately rely on ourselves? Relying on the flesh? Verse 17 adds to our assurance, if we're children of God, then we're to be heirs of God. And that's that eternal perspective that we always talk about. In verses 20 through 25, Paul turns and talks about hope and earnest expectation that we can have from the Spirit. In verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep, too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those that who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that we might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined also called, and those whom He also called, He also justified. And those, those whom He justified, He also glorified. And there's a lot to unpack in this passage. It's very important for us to understand, first and foremost, the Spirit making intercession for us. He's talking about suffering. He's been talking about affliction and that there are times that we just don't know what to say. There are times that the problems are very real in our lives and the Spirit makes intercession on our, on our behalf. He, this is established in multiple places in the New Testament. That doesn't mean that we don't need to acknowledge the struggles that we have in our lives. That doesn't mean that we don't need to go to God in prayer and just hope that the Spirit is working on our behalf. But he says there, he searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit. I find that very interesting because there's this correlation between the heart and the Spirit and the searching that is going on. And I'm reminded of David's psalm where David talks about inviting God into his heart and trying his reins. And I've felt guilty many times when I read that passage because of the fact that there are times in my life that I don't want God in my heart. There are plenty of times in my life that I have not been in a position where I would willingly invite God into my heart to see what is going on in my heart. And David, at his lowest point, 
and the struggles that he would go through openly said, God, come into my heart. He goes on to talk about those, all things happen to those, or excuse me, those who love the God. And we know for those that love God, all things work together for good. And this is a passage that oftentimes is misused, maybe a little bit even more important. It's misunderstood. And we need to understand that not everything is about uh, being happy and all things making sense in this world. Paul doesn't say that all the event, individual events will work out for good. Paul doesn't say that there's sometimes that you make decisions and you reap the consequences of those decisions. Many years ago, I woke up one morning and I had this terrible stain, pain in my stomach and my back as I was getting ready for work. And my wife said, hey, you look really pale. I'm we probably should take you to the ER. And I was like, ah, I'll be fine. I drove to work. And as I drove to work, I had to pull over because I had to throw up. I continued to, even after that, I continued to go to work. I get to work and a lady I work with walks in and she says, you're sheet white. What are you doing here? You need to go to the ER. And I was like, I'll wait for my doctor. She's like, go to the ER. She says, matter of fact, I'll take you to the ER. I was like, no, I'll be fine. I'll drive. I drive and wind up getting into a fender bender. And I get out of the car and that guy says, oh, you didn't do anything wrong with my car, let's go. And about that time, I throw up again. So what is this guy automatically thinking? I'm drunk at 7.30 in the morning. Luck would have it, a DPS officer drops by and sees all this going on. He pulls over, he thinks I'm drunk. Next thing you know, I've got sheriff's department, DPS, ambulance, fire department all around me, and I'm in this terrible pain, and I'm telling everybody, I need to get to the ER. And I finally get to the ER, they get me on medicine, and DPS officer shows up in the emergency room and gives me a ticket. It wound up, I was having, I had kidney stones. And I tell you that story because you know, I was in that decision because I was just being, I was in that position because I was just being dumb. All the things that happened in that whole story was for me not listening to my wife. How many times have we said that? If I would have just listened to my wife and said, sure, take me to the ER, I wouldn't have had a wreck. I wouldn't have had a ticket. I wouldn't have had an extra ambulance ride tacked onto my gigantic medical bill. I was in that position just because I was being dumb. Do all things work together for the Lord whenever you're being dumb? Sometimes they don't. Let's see what Paul is, what he's saying here. First, that Paul's talking about those that love God. And this is one of those passages that you see uh, stapled on so many different things. It's in high school locker rooms. It's in all of these places. But he says it is for those that love God. Up to this point, he's established many principles that show that we love God. Most and for, first and foremost, are we being obedient to Him? Secondly, Paul says all those that work together for the love of God and the things that the promise is that we're not going to just have 
feelings of happiness and everything's great and wonderful. And I believe that's where this passage gets put into situations that directly affects people's faith. Whenever people are having real struggles and real trials in life and someone says, you know, all things work together for good. And that's not always the answer. Sometimes people need encouragement. Third, Paul does not say that each individual event in our life happens for good. And I want us to understand that an eternal perspective here, that all things work together for good. That means that today may be a bad day, and there may be things going wrong today. But at the end of all of it, when we are all dead and in the ground, it's all for good. And I think we get bogged down into thinking then the immediate minutia of our lives, well, this thing must be what God was talking about. And that's not the reality at all. It's an eternal, bigger, broader picture that we have got to focus our mind on. And not expecting everything to be biscuits and gravy and walks in the park. If you didn't get that reference, that's a good day. He punctuates this then by saying, what, shall we say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on to talk about what he referenced, all, what he's talked about in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6. A God who willingly gave his son for us. Who willingly gave his own son for our sins. And he asked the question, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. If God is for us, who is against us? That's a big picture question. Just like all things working together for good is a big picture question. Is there plenty of people in this world that are against us? But ultimately, they can do nothing to us if we're serving God eternally. In verse 37, it says, No, in all things, things are more than conquerors. Excuse me, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul asked his final rhetorical question in verse 31. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And we've seen how Paul is working through these rhetorical questions. I don't know if Paul... Knowing the law or what he did, he came up with these rhetorical questions, or maybe there were questions that he had been asked throughout his travels and spreading the gospel. But what we need to understand that Paul is saying here that not things that happen to the people of God, let me rephrase that, there are things that happen in this life that are not going to separate us from the love of God. 
The question is, is there anything that we are doing to separate ourselves? You see, all of these trials, tribulations, all of these things that can happen in the world, God says, I'm with you at all points and all times. Christ says, I'm with you from the beginning to the end. If you submit to me. The question becomes, are we separating ourselves from God? He will always love us. He will continue to always love us. Even whenever we are in the greatest traps of sin, he will love us. That there is nothing that will separate him from us in his love. And it's greater than the vastness of this universe. That's what all of this is. And that's the beauty of Romans chapter 8, is that through all of these struggles, through all of these questions, at the end it's punctuated with this very important statement that God's great love is greater than the vastness of this universe. This morning we asked the question, have you responded to his love? Paul established that we have a sin problem in our lives. In Romans 5, he said that apart from Christ, we can't make God happy. In Romans 7, he said that when we are separated from God, that we are hostile towards God. How do you get in Christ? In Romans chapter 6, he talked about being baptized into Christ, being baptized in the waters of baptism so that we are resurrected to a newness of life just as Christ was. This morning, if you've not taken that opportunity, we encourage you to do that. We have water here and we can assist you if you need to do that. We also can help you if you're struggling with the things that Paul talked about. If you're going through the very inward battle that Paul was talking about, not understanding this fact that we struggle with sin and the very thing that we know we not ought to do, we go out and do it. And we can turn towards the love of God and offer prayers on your behalf. If you would find yourself in either of those groups this morning, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.